Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, uh, the uh, the Worldo Classico happened over the weekend. <laughs> Patriots versus Jets. No. Oh, that okay. They're talking about the Brazil and Israeli elections. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was very busy yeah. doing my civic duty, knocking yeah. on doors for uh, Katie Porter. So I didn't see the whole game. But did you watch? How'd it go? I did. I like I told you, I refused to get my hopes up at the Jets. Uh, like we've now, uh, I mean, we're on our like I don't know what number this is of a quarterback that is clearly not. Uh, NFL caliber quarterback that we'll probably hang with for like three years just to make it as painful as possible. But I'm already onto the Knicks. Okay, I watched okay. the Knicks Listen, on Sunday. He's, he's on, on they the lost next one. too. Uh, the but congratulations won. on a resounding Listen. victory in the, in the, in the <laughs> World Absolutely terrible game. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Ben, I did uh, slip in a plug for myself knocking on doors. If you have not voted yet, and but let me tell you, the California ballot takes some time, takes a minute. Uh, thing I, is long. I did. I filled out my ballot. Uh, I dropped it off. Excellent. You know, California makes it easy. I had to. Go to various voter guides to understand so many the ballot initiatives and the judges. You know, I know, I, I know. Well, we got you covered. If you for oh. anyone who hasn't done it yet, votesaveamerica.com. That's one of the voter guides I went to. The ballot yeah. ready tool. It is so helpful. Yeah, this company is worth it to me for so many reasons. Yeah. but just to have that ballot ready tool helps you know what's on your ballot. Help you make a plan to be a voter. You can also find volunteer opportunities uh, if you want to help out. It's kind of now or never, people. Got like a week left. Yeah. Um, so yeah, consider you should, it. You should be. Check it out. They can use your help. You should be voting where you can vote. Yeah, please vote at the bare minimum. Uh, Lots of big election news that we'll cover today. So the uh, Brazil's presidential election happened on Sunday. Uh, We're getting some exit polls in about the Israeli election that we'll cover, even though it pains me to talk about uh, exit polls. We'll talk about the latest news about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the national security implications of the Twitter sale, uh, some devastating, devastating mass casualty events that happened in India and South Korea, some good news on climate change, uh, and a little bit of fun, thanks to our friends in the UK. And then, Ben, you will hear my interview uh, with USAID administrator Samantha Power. I believe you know her well. She was down at Morehouse College. She was trying to recruit uh, more diverse candidates into the Foreign Service, into the field of international development. Very, very important, uh, worthy goal. We talked about, you know, the dire state of food insecurity. Why do people say food insecurity? Lots of millions and millions of people are starving because of the pandemic uh, conflicts uh, and the Russian invasion and the subsequent food shortages. We talked about that. Uh, and a lot more. So it was a great conversation. Yeah, great. She's doing that. I mean, uh, th- there's been this chronic problem of a of, of an overwhelmingly white workforce in the national security enterprise, and uh, the only way to really fix it is to create pipelines to you know people coming in young, um, so that the foreign policy workforce looks like America, and we'd probably get better outcomes if it yep, did. So yep. good for Sam. Absolutely. Uh, okay, you want to start in Brazil? Yeah, let's start the happy. Start with some good news. Yeah, yes. So great news for Brazil. Great news for the planet. Uh, Lula da Silva defeated the current little baby fascist president, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, in Sunday's election. Lula won by 2.1 million votes, or 1.8%. It was the closest presidential election in the 34 years uh, of Brazil's modern democracy. 
nearly 120 million Brazilians voted. Lula can start to form a transitional government as of today, November 1st. His inauguration is on or will be on January 1st. Bolsonaro supporters are not taking it well. Uh, a lot of them set up roadblocks all across the country in protests. They seem to be just waiting for instructions uh, from Bolsonaro about what to do. After two very long days, Bolsonaro finally spoke today and did a brief press conference. He did not concede the election directly. Instead, he whined about the left and then later had his chief of staff come out and say uh, that he'd been authorized to start the transition process. To his credit, Bolsonaro also said, quote, Peaceful demonstrations will always be welcome, but our methods cannot be those of the left, like property invasion, destruction of goods, and restrictions on the right to come and go. So it seems like he's trying to get people out of the streets. Um, again, Lula is a leftist former president. He was, you know, I think the, one of the most popular politicians in Brazilian history when he left office, was later arrested on corruption charges. Those were annulled. Uh, he will also, thank God, take steps to stop deforestation of the Amazon. So Ben, Huge win for the world today. Um, how nervous were you, or I guess, do you remain about the potential for political violence, sort of all anyone's been talking about in the lead up to this election? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a huge uh, victory that cannot be overstated for a number of reasons. This is an enormous country, uh, biggest country in South America, um, and and was really teetering on the brink as we have been in this country and as a lot of countries have been between an outward autocratic far-right leader, Bolsonaro, um, and, you know, and Lula, who's a very well-known uh, leftist figure. Um, but as you said, the outcome actually almost mattered even more because if the kind of two twin challenges of our time are the survival of democracy and the survival of the planet, you know, another term of Bolsonaro essentially completely giving the finger to anyone who cares about the environment and allowing this kind of unchecked logging and destruction of the Amazon was one of the most dangerous things happening in the world. Yeah. And if Lula can just put in place basic protections against deforestation, it'll have a real outsized impact in making sure that one of the most important natural carbon capture uh, places in the world, the Amazon, survives. I still think that the result was alarmingly close yeah, in a lot was. of ways it is a lot of a lot of uh, parallels to our 2020 election in the same way that the polls consistently show Lula way up some yeah. of them 15 points uh, and Bolsonaro's party did well in down ballot elections yeah scary it, well. same thing in 2020 yeah. we, we didn't you know we lost ground in the house and you know didn't do as well as we thought in some states it shows that there's a resilience to Bolsonaro's brand of politics, which is kind of outwardly undemocratic. It also shows, you know, there's a, a similar polarization in Brazilian society as, as in the U.S. in that there's an enormous evangelical Christian population that has been kind of radicalized in politics and forms a big chunk of the Bolsonaro base. And so it's very interesting to look at how Brazil and the U.S. kind of mirror one another. Uh, I think going forward... You know, so far, Bolsonaro hasn't tried to initiate a coup, which is what he was warning he might do and which you know people like Bernie Sanders have come on the show to talk about. That doesn't mean they're out of the woods. Right. In that there could, some time. Yeah, there could be continued disruptions. There could be continued demonstrations. There could be, you know, January 6th happened a couple months after our yeah, election. He could, quote unquote, find fraud, right? Because exactly. I mean, that's what this whole thing was an allegation of voter fraud. Then there's some step along, some interim step along the way in December 19th, where the election authority gives him a diploma certifying the results. Like there's all these things that should be ceremonial 
in the process that like God knows what wrench you could throw in there. And we have to remember that Bolsonaro time and again has learned from Trump. Uh, there's yeah. no other leader who's so self-consciously modeled himself on Trump. Same social media strategies, same consultants. And so just as Trump fixated on those ceremonial gates that had to be cleared, yep. uh, that's where Bolsonaro could train his energy. He only spoke for a couple minutes. He may be saving his rants about fraud for somewhere else. And also there are undemocratic ways they could just try to make life hell for Lula as for president. Sure. Uh, if people want to, you know, I want to take seriously, people sometimes ask for recommendations for, for further exploration. The Edge of Democracy is this documentary that came out a few years ago mm. about the prosecution of Lula. Really good. And how much they kind of, the right wing worked the courts to basically overturn the government. and. Yeah. Throw, and that's not to say there's no corruption in the left in Brazil. There's, there's been corruption all over the place in Brazil. But you could see a scenario where like civil unrest and legal challenges, just kind of this paralysis takes hold. Yeah, messy. Still better outcome. This is, is better. Is assuming Lula gets in that presidential palace. What do you think the odds are that Trump called Bolsonaro and told him not to concede or like passed a message along through an intermediary like his son or something. I saw Steve Bannon's ranting and raving that Bolsonaro shouldn't step down. Uh, One million percent that happened. I want someone to report it out. Yeah, I remember Bolsonaro was up at Mar-a-Lago. Jason Miller was down there. Bannon's been all over the Bolsonaro thing. getting COVID everywhere. And look, we should say that it was notable that the night that these results came in, um, the Biden administration, Justin Trudeau, Gabriel Boric down in Chile, I'm sure others, like yeah. people were fast out of the gate with statements congratulating Lula. I think there was a smart effort that's kind of what Bernie was trying, trying to get to box ahead of. Him in. Yeah, just, you know, hey, we the world is recognizing Lula as the winner. And I should say in Latin America, um, part of what's working against Bolsonaro is, as we've said a million times in the show, there's this movement to the left. Yeah. Um, you know, Lula was the, he's the OG. <laughs> you know, like he, he much more than Fidel Castro is kind of the, parent figure to today's Latin American left. It's an economic populist trade union block. It's not full communism. And so I think you'll see, you know, some warm feelings from some of this next gen leftist uh, cohort. Yeah. Okay. So you win some, you lose some. Uh, And we don't know that we lost some yet, but the early exit polls out of the Israeli election suggest that former Israeli prime minister Bibi Netanyahu in his ultra, ultra, ultra right wing uh, allies may have won enough seats in parliament, in the Knesset, uh, their parliament, to have a majority to get 61 seats and restore him as prime minister. Uh, listen, I hate myself for talking about exit polls. I'm t- talking about foreign exit polls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I like honestly, like wh- what lesson have I not learned? I'm talking about foreign exit polls, let alone American ones, but it would be uh, disastrous. So we'll keep an eye on that. And I swear to God, Ben, if I hear anyone in the Democratic Party say, BB, God love you, I love you, or any of that shit, I'm going to lose my mind. Yeah. I mean, we should note that the exit polls show him up. Uh, I think the last election, uh, they similarly overstated BB's support. Yes, they did. So, like, that's the the read of hope that I can hang on to. But um, it does look, you know, like there's a, a very real chance he could be able to form this government. Keep in mind, too, sometimes the drama of counting votes in Israel and forging coalitions can take a little time. That said, given how narrow it is, like his only pathway is likely with the most odious far right coalition that we've had in Israel to date. And uh, and Bibi returned to power 
with an enemies list and having survived mm-hmm. the various crimes he committed that they just haven't been able to prosecute uh, on a timeline before this election is not going to be an appetite. It's not good. And, <laughs> it's not good. And, and we can get to it if, if it goes that way. The, the You know, tensions are high with Iran. Uh, you know, MBS is fluxing in the region. Like, there's, there's things that could go wrong here. Uh, and, and, yeah, to your point about Democrats... Uh, he will be working against the Biden administration Every no matter, no matter how many times Joe Biden tells him. Every step of the way. God love you. I love you, BB. Like he doesn't love you back. You know? And uh, no, let's not no. make the mistake of thinking that, you know, because you were friends with the guy 30 years ago that he's somehow going to. He's a terrible person. Yeah. yeah. My guy, uh, Yair Rosenberg over uh, writes for the Atlantic. Great follow. Great voice on Israeli politics is in my DMs telling me to chill out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rightly yeah, so. Yeah. It's like, take some time. We'll see what happens. We'll see. Take some time yeah. to vote. It's, it's no. early. It's, it's um, exi- As we learned in the Obama campaigns, ex- exit polls were often wrong. Yeah. I, you but know, sometimes right. <laughs> college settlements are still up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about, <laughs> bro, that's the nerdiest joke that's I've ever great, made. Great uh, merging of our interests. Awful. Uh, okay. Russia, Ukraine. Want to talk about it? Let's do it. So you'll hear Samantha Power and I talk about um, the the efforts to preserve this diplomatic agreement to get grain out of Ukrainian ports through the Black Sea. That deal needed to be reauthorized anyway, but then was in more jeopardy after Russia got very mad uh, at Ukraine for attacking its Black Sea fleet with a swarm of explosive-laden drone boats. Um, <laughs> it's obviously absurd for the Russians to be mad that the Ukrainians would um, attack back at the ships launching missiles at their cities. And attack their military. These are military <laughs> exactly. targets. Exactly. Yeah. But Ben, have you seen have you seen the video that was on Twitter from the drone boats? Yes, yes. Getting yeah. shot at by helicopters yes, and stuff? Yes, they did, yeah, yeah. It's just wild. It's wild. It, it, I mean, it does, it's kind of interesting how this war merges very old-fashioned war with new technologies yeah. because the Iranian kind of kamikaze drones um, that really... You know, are a, been fairly, a game changer, really terrorist yes. weapon, right? They just, you know, you don't know where they're going to come from, and they're not super high tech, but they can achieve an effect. Um, this is an interesting kind of reverse engineering of that, you know. And uh, the Ukrainians have been quite good at going right to the core of Russia's military advantage. You know, not shying away from trying to hit, you know, things like their Black Sea fleet. Um, that are vital to their sustainment of their war effort and far away from the front line. And it, it is a good indication of the Ukrainians kind of being entrepreneurial and finding ways to, to project power far beyond where they have like a physical presence. Absolutely. Um, so the other sort of development, I mean, the Russians continue to just hammer uh, energy and water infrastructure, civilian infrastructure in Ukraine with airstrikes. The Associated Press reported that Russia is now recruiting U.S. trained Afghan special forces soldiers to fight in Ukraine, which is, you know, depressing and awful. Uh, Iran is reportedly sending more of the drones uh, that we just talked about in weapons to Russia. The Washington Post had a long report on Russian efforts to subvert the government of Moldova through its intelligence services. That's worth reading. Uh, And then there was a report in NBC News that President Biden uh, lost his temper at President Zelensky during a phone call in June, when Zelensky asked for more aid, I guess Biden had just been like, here's a billion dollars worth of new aid we're going to give you. Zelensky was like, great, here's my new list. Um, question is whether this was sort of like a momentary hiccup or maybe a sign of things to come when the politics of just constantly pushing out billions and billions of dollars worth of assistance out the door gets more difficult. I don't know. It's hard to tell. 
Yeah, I've heard, and this is, I'm not citing any specific individual conversation, but, but you, you know, there have been these rumblings that, that the relationship b- between Biden and Zelensky wasn't necessarily as rosy as it looked on the surface, you know, like you hear that from some journalists kind of, but nobody quite, I think a story like this was going to come at some point. Um, and look, this is one of those cases where I kind of see both sides, you know, like of course. Zelensky's of job course. is to get as much as he possibly can for his country and his people. Um, that's the role he's playing. That's what his people want him to be doing. And that often involves kind of holding our feet to the fire. Um, and I do note that every time there's any release, he's very laudatory of Biden and, and the administration, but that's what he's doing. And if you're Biden, that would be frustrating because you're like, well, I just, you know, tens and tens of billions of dollars in aid are flowing where, where I have all these other problems uh, around inflation that are being exacerbated by this conflict. Um, so I understand Biden's frustration. I think this is going to interestingly come to, it may come to a head um, in the next couple of months because it's midterm madness. We're holding out hope. People mm-hmm. should be knocking on doors. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. We're hopeful. Desperately want Katie Porter back in there as well as a lot of Democrats. But if we lose the House, right, um, Kevin McCarthy's kind of gone on record and saying, yeah. we're not going to write you a blank check. And so therefore, I think the normal instinct would be, hey, in this lame duck session, and what that means is the congressional session in November and December before it flips the Republicans um, in January, maybe try to do some really big aid package to the Ukrainians that can at least get us through next year so that we don't have to come back to Congress. However- Yeah, we also have the debt ceiling. Exactly. There's so much to get done. There's a lot to get done. And and so we had the discussion last week about the diplomacy. You know, uh, I got a lot of feedback on that. (laughs) Good, bad, and ugly. Um, But the point is, again, not any wavering of any support for Ukraine. It's that- I, part of what Biden, I'm sure, foresees is it's going to get harder to continue to provide the level of funding that we're providing. We're talking you know, $50, 60000000000 billion. These are the kind of supplementals that we had for, for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. And it'll be an interesting early test of how the Biden team wants to approach that if they lose the House as to whether or not they go big in the in the lame duck or whether they punt it to next year thinking, you know, Kevin McCarthy, we're going to call his bluff if, if we need this uh, additional funding for the Ukrainians. They're going to need funding either way, right? Because yep. mo- if the war is going, they need to fund that. If somehow the war ends, there's a huge rebuilding effort that has to take place. There's still food shortages. I'm sure Sam talked to you about that. So this is an issue that this question of what is the end game, what is the end state of our policy, how much and how long are we willing to fund this, uh, it's just going to be an increasing part of the political discussion. Yeah, I mean, Sam mentioned in the in our conversation that one of the good things Congress did on a bipartisan basis was actually give them some flexibility yeah. to allocate funding based on need that's kind of downstream from the war. So, you know, if there's a famine in Yemen because yeah. they can't get food, uh, because Ukraine uh, can't export grain, it seems like they have more flexibility. But yeah, I, I think in a more politicized environment uh, leading into a presidential election, that flexibility probably goes away. And yeah. it's something we should all be worried about. Uh, ben, in much dumber news, have you heard that Elon Musk bought Twitter? Uh, I, I've been made aware of it by yeah. some very, uh, very concerned people. Some uh, very concerned uh, yeah, people. Some of, some of which is very well-founded, some of which is less well-founded. I, 
we're going to, I'm sure, probably talk about the well-funded fears. Eh, we can I, do both. I don't want. think Elon Musk is kind of like whoever the you is out there. You're probably not the person that is in his crosshairs. You yeah. Know? Also, I mean, there, there's people who seem to think like he's like a, a Russian stooge. And if that's true, your concern should probably be more about SpaceX and their contracts with NASA and the military than Twitter. But back to Twitter. I mean, the impact of the sale was like pretty quickly not great. A bunch of trolls were like, yeah. oh, let's all tweet the N-word now or yeah, other same, like yeah. vile yeah. stuff. We also uh, all had to endure just much more of Elon's terrible jokes and trolling and carrying sinks around and just the guy, the personality is just horrendous. Yeah, not exactly a winning personality. No, yeah. no. But there's some people who are worried about the national security implications. And it's come from a couple different angles. So there were reports that Twitter has severely limited the number of people who can moderate content and that doing so impacted their ability to deal with misinformation in Brazil during the election on Sunday. Obviously, that's worrisome, worrisome in the Israeli elections. Uh, also not ideal for us since we have midterms coming up. And then Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut has requested that the Committee on Foreign Investment review the acquisition, given that the Saudis are the second largest shareholder. Now, the Saudis bought into Twitter in 2011 and then 2015, and they've held those shares since. So it's not new, but I imagine they think, well, does the risk profile change now that Twitter is a privately held company? There's less transparency, there's less disclosure. We should also just point out that, you know, there were reports a year or two ago that the Saudis installed a spy at Twitter yeah. uh, to get information on dissidents. Yeah. They recently threw an old man uh, in jail for 16 years for tweeting. For tweets, yeah. So bad actors, certainly. Uh, and then there was also a report in the Washington Post today about the U.S. disrupting a China-based attempt yeah. at covertly, several of them actually, covertly influencing U.S. elections that was happening on Twitter. Uh, makes you wonder how Elon will respond given that, you know, he sells a lot of Teslas yes. in China. So yes. I, I don't know, how are you... How, this is where you? Yes. Okay. It does. Um, it really does. And it doesn't worry me because he's a Russian stooge. It worries me because he's a tech bro. And despite his massive ego and his desire to kind of be present in the public square, you know, at the end of the day, he's interested in money. And you have two countries, Saudi Arabia and China, that I think are literally at the top of the list uh, as countries that use their wealth to try to gain an advantage and gain For leverage sure. over yep. people, right? And so what are the two concerns that are related? Saudi Arabia has put people in prison for tweets, uh, has put spies in Twitter, and, and would like to know who are the human beings behind accounts that I'm sure are critical of MBS. Um, if they're not, you know, Ben wrote, you know, like I do it, you know, with my blue check mark that I don't have to pay for. But Elon Musk has talked a lot about rooting out bots and authenticating users. Yep. Well, there's some people that have very good reason to, to, <laughs> to be anonymous, to be yeah. anon on, anonymous on Twitter. Yeah, like not wanting to die or get dismembered. That's right. So weirdly, Elon Musk's stated objectives are very similar to Saudi Arabia's, which is, hey, we want to know who's tweeting what on Twitter. And, and if you think this is a small thing, again, cite the example, a, an old guy who literally tweeted in this country, yeah. then gets thrown in prison back there. We're talking about people that could go to prison for tweets that they've already tweeted, you know, if the Saudis somehow can get their hands on the user data about who that individual was. That's a big concern. And then China, you're right, he is massively exposed in China. Like the Tesla business model and supply chain relies very heavily on China. We know China uses that to leverage U.S. companies to do what they want. And so if the Chinese want to have free, you know, free reign to run their disinformation campaigns on Twitter, or if the Chinese would like information about who a particular user is, 
um, that's that's a real concern <laughs> that they could have this leverage on Elon Musk. So I think, it, again, the concern is not that Elon Musk is going to cancel the resistance Twitter. The concern is, uh, you know, Saudis and Chinese and and disinformation campaigns. Probably Indian journalists and India, dissidents. I'm sure, and, you yeah. know, yes, exactly. So that, that this kind of authoritarian creep into Twitter could, you know, Elon Musk could be either intentionally or unintentionally opening the door to that. And it does make you kind of de- depressed when you step back and think, what are our big social media platforms? We've got Mark Zuckerberg's owned Facebook, and we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about the damage that's done. Love it. We've got the Chinese-owned TikTok, um, and we have now Elon Musk, who is literally in business with the Saudis and relies on the Chinese and his supply chain. That doesn't make you very hopeful about the intersection of social media and democracy. It does not. Um, Drew Harwell from the Washington Post tweeted the following, quote, the ultra MAGA hot babe who tweeted that Obama was an Illuminati lizard to her 26,000 followers was actually a Chinese operative. I think that pretty well summarizes the kind of sums up the whole thing. State of social media. I mean, we're just going to have to look at the end of the day. I think we're all going to have to figure out how to not be as reliant on this I agree. Platforms, I, agree. Like, I agree. The, the other really interesting article, uh, that it's sort of too long to summarize, but um, Ken Klippenstein in The Intercept wrote about efforts by DHS to monitor and take down misinformation. This stems from the 2016 election and the Russian interference. It started under Trump and has gone on until today, but it, it gets at just how difficult it is to deal with misinformation and disinformation in foreign actors but like not cross that line into a place where you have dangerous government censorship. It's like it's like an incredibly hard problem. And I think I am, you know, I'm I'm sympathetic to the argument that like ultimately the greatest threat of all is uh, an overbearing government, you know, controlling speech, right? Like that's why the first amendment exists. But that doesn't mean the US government can just rely on these private companies to police um, misinformation and the, the stuff that we've seen over the last few years. I mean, they've completely failed. What we've learned is we can't. Yeah. And what worries me in this case, you spoke, I think, very uh, smartly about Elon Musk not really making a good business decision in pouring, you know, uh, what, $44 billion into Twitter and taking on a billion dollars a year in interest on, yeah. on debt um, for a company that makes hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue a year, so less than even the debt he has to finance, who has bottomless wealth? It's the Saudis, you know. And so, yes, they've been a partner, they've been invested in Twitter, but they can write a check tomorrow for forty billion dollars if they wanted to. I'm not saying they're going to buy the whole thing, but they can. If Elon's looking for a lifeline, um, you know, their their capacity to gain more and more leverage oh, is for there. Sure. For and, sure. And the dystopian scenario is we all wake up one day and all these platforms are kind of owned by. China and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, look, I mean, uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment, like CFIUS reviews, yeah. it's so opaque to me. I have no idea how it works. I think it's just like an interagency I used governmental to sit thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like the, the you know, it's a little too late for that at this point. But I mean, maybe there's a way to sort of look at it in hindsight and see if there's increased risk. But you can't block it at this point. I obviously. think, yeah. Uh, and it's really expanded over the years. Like when when I would start to attend those meetings, it'd be, you know, the hypothetical I'd give, you know, the like Chinese- Huawei. Chinese, or, or no, it was even more like, China's going to buy a bunch of land next to a military yes, base. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, like, let's maybe not let Tall them do towers, that. Tall right? towers. Exactly. Um, but now it's really expanded as we've gotten more concerned about uh, particularly Chinese investment in the U.S. in sensitive areas. 
in this case, what Chris Murphy's doing that I think is really smart, it may not uh, you know, block the sale, but it is kind of laying down a marker, right? So the scenario I just articulated I was worried about that if Elon wants to get bailed out of some of his le- uh, exposure on Twitter, the Saudis could write that check. This is kind of planting a flag and saying, and you know what, like the more you rely on the Saudis, uh, the more regulatory scrutiny you may get. That's a good and, point. And you're right, as a private company, we don't, you know, you don't see the books in the same way. Yeah, and so disclosure. you need the government to get involved. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Okay, so there were two uh, recent truly horrible mass casualty incidents that I think are worth mentioning. And, you know, truthfully, Ben, we struggle with whether to include these kinds of topics on the show because often it's just like horrific and devastating for the people impacted, but not always, a, a you know, a policy nexus. But in these two cases, I actually think there could be one. Um, so the first such incident happened in India where a 754-foot-long pedestrian bridge collapsed, killing 134 people, many of them children. 180 people were rescued from the river that the bridge was spanning. Uh, Authorities have arrested nine people associated with the bridge's operation. And and the reason I wanted to mention this, Ben, is because a member of the Congress party has alleged that BJP leaders in the region had recently announced the reopening of the bridge as a Diwali gift to the people and did so without ensuring it was safe. And so the BJP is another political party. It's the one uh, Prime Minister Modi is a part of. In the area where this happened, uh, Gujarat province, 
is Modi's home turf. Yeah. He was the governor of there back in the day. So, I mean, it feels like time will tell if there is some sort of political element to what happened or if this was just like a horrific incident in a dilapidated bridge that wasn't well maintained. But I mean, like, you know, for Modi, the political risk of a story about maybe corruption, maybe criminal negligence, I mean, that is one that voters understand and frankly, one that he's used in the past when incidents like this have happened. Yeah, it illustrates why things like a free press matter uh, because, you know, sometimes we talk about this uh, as just kind of a, a amorphous value out there in the world. Don't lock up journalists, don't harass journalists. But the real world consequence is, you know, investigative journalism in India is really on the back foot because Modi has made life so miserable for people like Rana Yub, for mm -hmm. instance, friend of the pod, um, who, who've tried to hold them accountable. Part of what is so concerning about this is like, is there an Indian media that can get to the bottom of this? Yeah, because um, BJP announced an investigation and like, sure. I, I don't have any sure faith in the BJP no. investigation. Uh, and and this is a huge, yeah. I mean, if if some you know political agenda uh, led to the unsafe opening of a bridge that killed this many people and children, like that's why you have investigative journalism. And so to me, it speaks to the need for there to be a check. If, if I'm Indian and, and and I want an argument for democracy, that's not just kind of a, you know, professorial thing about why democracy is good. It's like, you don't want your bridges to collapse. So therefore you need institutions and people that can hold people in power accountable. Yeah, and this, I think, highlights that. It's a really good point. Uh, the second incident happened in South Korea, in Seoul, where a massive crowd, I've seen estimates of like 100,000 people, were celebrating Halloween in this one district. And I guess this enormous crowd, and there was very little crowd control to be seen, tried to squeeze through a very narrow alley at one point that created a stampede. Uh, and killed over 150 people and injured 150 more. And basically what happens is people get stuck, someone falls over, another person falls over, the crowd keeps moving, and people just get crushed. I mean, it's like literally the it's worst thing imaginable. horrible, yeah. And again, many of the victims were teens, yeah. 20s, you know? Yeah. They're out celebrating Halloween. And so the Interior Ministry is vowed to investigate. They've apologized. The mayor of Seoul has apologized, rightly so, because it seems like, you know, the authorities uh, ignored several warnings about crowd control and safety issues. President uh, declared a week of national mourning. They went to a memorial. I mean, it's like the worst thing you could imagine. But again, like the kind of thing that could have enormous political ramifications if voters in Korea decide that like negligence of a party or a political faction is is what happened. Yeah. And this president was already not in the strongest position. Now, no. he's not the one that is kind of as directly responsible as the local authorities there. But there is a sense, I think, in, in South Korean politics that, that things are not that stable right now, you know. And um, there's, look, there are huge issues in that part of the world. And you want, like any democracy today, but you want there to be kind of a trust between political leadership and, and the people. And this is the kind of event that breaks that trust down. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, ben, I have something very rare for you, which is a good news story about climate change. Good. Ready? Let's hear it. So NASA recently installed an instrument on the side of the International Space Station. It's called the Earth Surface Mineral Dust Source Investigation Instrument. 
call it EMIT for, for short. The purpose of EMIT is to basically see how airborne dust impacts the climate, but it is also surprisingly proven to be incredibly good at detecting areas where there are huge plumes of methane gas getting released into the atmosphere. So basically this thing's like spinning around the globe and it's found like 50 gigantic hotspots of methane gas re being released, which is good news because cutting methane gas emissions is critical to limiting climate change. Now you can find those areas and try to fix them quickly. And so this this instrument, I think, got installed in June, um, very, very recently. So they're just getting started here. So shout out to the scientists and NASA, and I don't know, maybe at the next COP summit, they can figure out a way to use this technology and clean this stuff up. I don't know. I thought you were gonna say that the good news story is that Brett Stevens wrote a cover story for the New York Times- You know what, uh, I apologize. Opinion section. You're right. Saying that he now believes in climate change, but-, but. The market will fix it all with its invisible. Did hand. he really say that? I didn't <laughs> yeah. want to give him the click. I didn't. I didn't click it either. I, I just read the headline. So the market uh, will. Yeah, but uh, anyway, um, I just wanted to get that in. Um, noted climate denier. Uh, now, uh, I, wow. I actually think this is a really relevant story to fly because, you know, part of what we have to watch over the next five, ten years is we all know that government action is insufficient to hit even the Paris objectives at this point. There is, I think, something important happening in the markets, right? It, you know, where a combination of overwhelming amounts of investments, like in uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which mm -hmm. hopefully they'll rename for history as the <laughs> Climate, Reduction, else, climate yeah. Change Reduction Act, um, takes hold and creates market incentives for people to invest in these technologies. But the big missing piece has always been, you know, what are there game-changing technologies that can help us deal with this? And I think sometimes people who care a lot about climate change don't want to suggest that there's just a technological fix out of this um, because that's kind of something, if you really push the right wing on this, they, they kind of say, well, the, you know, someone will invent something to pull all the carbon out of the, the air. Now, that said, we are going to need technological yeah, fixes. Well, you know? And look, yeah, we're criticizing yeah. the right wing. Like some, yeah. of, some of our friends on the left think that like capitalism has to be eradicated before exactly. climate change we manage. And like maybe, maybe there's a version of this planet where that is true and we'd be in a better place, but it ain't happening. So we have to leverage capitalism and technology to try to deal with the problem. That is exactly right. I mean, look, I could mount an argument that it'd be great to start fresh without our brand of capitalism. Um, you know, I'm watching the White Lotus now too. People should check that out. Um, Spoiler. But it, it's not going away, right now. you know. Uh, the, and so we have to work with what we've got. And th this kind of, you know, particularly as more and more money is flowing to research and development, um, you know, the more we can, uh, this is a good example of what technology can do is really pinpoint what the difference makers are so that with the limited resources we have, we can focus on on those things that can be most impactful. Yeah. Uh, one last thing before we get to the uh, interview with Smith Power. So Ben, our friends in the UK are, are once again blessing us with some comedy, with some laughs. This time it comes in the form of a reality TV show. So a conservative MP named Matt Hancock was suspended after joining the cast of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, uh, because he did so while Parliament was in session. <laughs> this, is, this is a British reality show. I guess celebrities, they go live in the jungle for a few weeks and they compete. It sounded vaguely familiar to me. I guess it's been around since 2002. 
It's a, yeah. It, I mean, it sounds like every reality show. Yeah, right? that's, that's very send, good. Yeah, send, but like, send some people somewhere and see what happens. This guy signed up for this show and was just gonna like fuck off from work for a couple of weeks. Uh, he served as the health minister during COVID, so he might be an idiot, but he's not a backbencher. Uh, the decision is not going over well in West Suffolk, his constituency. Andy Drummond, the deputy chairman of the West Suffolk Conservative Association, told the BBC that he was looking forward to seeing Mr. Hancock quote eating a kangaroo's penis. Uh, the Scottish National Party spokesperson, Pete Wishart, said, quote, it speaks volumes that Matt Hancock would rather be stranded in a remote jungle eating kangaroo testicles than spend a moment longer on the Tory benches at Westminster. Apparently, uh, kangaroo genitalia is a, a core part of this show. Uh, <laughs> Hancock's not the first conservative MP to do the show. Another one named Nadine Doherty's was mm, also yeah. suspended when she did uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here back in 2012. Are you interested? I I want to know this focus on the kangaroo. I really um, do too. I do, but I don't. What is that about? Uh, yeah, I guess I don't. I'd like someone to explain to me why. I don't want to actually see it. Yeah. Um, and maybe we have to bring in our friends from Rational Fear podcast in Australia to to, to do this work. Yeah, for or us. Lammy. Yeah. I'm just probably yeah, yeah. Lammy's big right. Well, the, the funny thing about Lammy is, like, I I did his. He has a radio show. Um, like an old fashioned radio show. Oh, is it's it like awesome. LBC or something? Yeah, yeah, doing? yeah. I think it is LBC and. So I did that, and it, it, it brought to my attention that actually British MPs can interestingly kind of just do more stuff than our members of Congress can. Why? It, I don't know. Like, I, like have a side They job. have side gigs, oh, you know, cool. like the, I have no idea what why Ted, that is. Ted Cruz has a podcast, man. I, I guess, well, maybe our members do and just nobody is interested. Yeah. Remember Bernie um, had a show that's pretty popular? Yeah, I, it just does feel like there's more of a profile outside of Parliament for these these people, but- I don't know that I'd want to watch. Uh, no, I don't really watch reality shows to begin with. But like, if I did, I'd, I don't know. I'd want to watch members of parliament. Uh, Nadine Dory is kind of hilarious in, a, in an unintentional way. Like she's worth a Google for like some of the ridiculous things she says. Um, who would be the American? This is clearly something Matt Gates would do. Uh, eat a, um, he would clearly eat, eat uh, a kangaroo a dick. Kangaroo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I could see that happening. Yeah. That's probably right. It just feels like that to me. Yeah. You know, you're right, though, that uh, I, I feel like maybe because of prime minister's question time, it's like you kind of have to mix it up constantly yeah. if you're an MP over in the UK because, like, there's no hiding from it. Yeah, yeah. You're going to get worked over. Yeah, you're going to get worked over, so you might as well be out there and owning it. If know? we could steal anything from their system, it would be that. Imagine if the president of the United States went up to Capitol Hill once a week, once a month, I don't care when it is, how often, and just got grilled by the opposition party for, like, an hour. It would be great. I, I think Obama would have kind of enjoyed it. Remember uh, when Obama went to the Republican yeah, he loved caucus that. meeting? He loved that. And, and he it, just ran circles yeah. around them. And then the 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 you know, the red hen civility police told us like he was too good at the session. And then and I, well, I think the next time they refused to air the questions. Yeah, they wouldn't um, do it live. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see Joe Biden's tack. Uh, he would probably go full senator. <laughs> yeah, he'd be Very buddies. long uh long wind-ins about how long he's known whoever asked Mitch the question. McConnell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's a celeb- There's a reality show called Alone that Hannah got really into where they like throw real survivalists out in like some intense places like Patagonia or the Arctic or and they have to just live off the land for months until they like essentially starve to death and have to leave. It's pretty intense, but so no, not they, a lot of celebrities out there. come in and help you out if you reach the end yes, of the line yes. there. There's, yeah. Um, yeah. there's some like health checks and you yeah. win like 500 grand if you are the last one, but you know. It's, was that like a COVID watch? Um, you know, we just kind of 
get into shows and get stuck in them because they're you know they're you know shows that are like good but not good enough that keep you awake. Yeah, it's one of those. I would. So we watch it at night for bed. I, I will never skip past like one of those, you know, ten thousand word New Yorker pieces about somebody who went to the Arctic and you know survivalist exploration. Yeah, those like, are good. I, I, I love that stuff. You know, I just read a long piece. You, I have like three open that you told me to read. There was a long one about the U.S. effort to arm the Ukrainians. It's worth reading. It's interesting. Joshua Yaffa's yeah, yeah. friend of the pod. Very uh, good. We've had we've had good Josh piece. on. Um, yeah, he does the whole history of it. Yeah, you know? it's good. It's good. Uh, okay, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, you will hear uh, USAID Administrator Samantha Power. So stick around for that. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Our guest today really needs no introduction. Uh, she's one of the world's biggest Boston Red Sox fans, even when... Uh, it's tough at times like these. Uh, she worked at the White House and the National Security Staff. She was the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. And she continues her government service today as the Administrator for the U.S. Agency for International Development. Samantha Power, it's great to see you. Lovely to see you, Tommy. Now, do you, do you watch World Series games when it's not our people? I do. My baseball affliction is deeper than any one team, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. I, I was I was watching... Um, Bears Bengals until Hannah said, why are we watching this? And I said, you're right. And we watched a show called Welcome to Wrexham, which I highly recommend if you oh. like uh, soccer. But Sam, I digress. Um, <laughs> we're here today to talk about uh, the work you're doing, I think global food insecurity. And so just ho- hoping we could start there. 
because I think listeners hear us talk about this in sort of a one-off way, like, you know, there's man-made famines in places like Yemen and Ethiopia because there's a war in the country or, you know, crop failures lead to food insecurity in some region of the world or climate change, you know, or the Russian invasion creating food insecurity. But what's your general sense at the moment of the scale of the problem and, you know, sort of the number of people around the world who are in need of food assistance? Um, it's, it's bleak. I, I will say right off the bat that the Congress put the United States in an incredible position to lead in the response, the humanitarian response, because with the Ukraine supplementals that passed uh, earlier this year, they actually gave us flexibility to provide humanitarian assistance also to those crises that were indirectly affected by Putin and his oh, that's great. and horrific um, uh, invasion of Ukraine. And so we are the world's leading humanitarian donor um, and always are, uh, but the, the, the gap between us and other countries, unfortunately, in, in, in many respects, um, is, is widening, but fortunately in the sense that it is because of bipartisanship actually around the provision of that assistance. So to your question, the needs are massive. Um, the number of people going hungry in the world has risen by 150 million since the start of the COVID pandemic, according to the UN. And that's the backdrop then against which Putin invades Ukraine and then compounds that hunger crisis by blockading food from leaving Ukrainian ports, by himself imposing uh, a ban on Russian fertilizer exports uh, for many months. And part of the issue, and Tommy, you and I have talked about this, I think, in the past, um, mm -hmm. is that conflicts just don't end. People like Putin right. add new ones to the ledger, but um, you know there remains uh, millions of displaced people from Syria because there is no resolution to that conflict. Sadly, the Yemen ceasefire that had been extended on a couple occasions has not yet at least been uh, extended an additional mm -hmm. time, meaning that that conflict could really bust open again, compounding then the pre-existing conditions, which are climate change, and then now a new pre-existing condition is, uh, for, for many countries, dependence on um, you know, food being sent into the market from places mm -hmm. like Ukraine. Um, Russia put in place a fertilizer ban before it invaded Ukraine. It now blames U.S. sanctions and Western sanctions on high fertilizer prices. That's just nonsense. They were the ones who held fertilizer back with their own export uh, bans and export restrictions. Um, but it's kind of like a perfect storm of the tail end of the pandemic, where countries have borrowed to get through the pandemic, then you know, higher temperatures or more climate shocks, you know, whether mm -hmm. floods or famine or, or floods or drought, yeah. I should say. Um, and then throw on top of that a war that has massively contributed to spiraling uh, food and fuel prices. And you have as many as 150 to 200 million more hungry people uh, this year uh, than, than you had uh, last year. My God, that is bleak. Um, well, so what we we're hoping to talk about today was something called the Black Sea Grain Initiative. Can you sort of explain what it is to listeners and, and why this is so important? Well, when Putin invaded Ukraine, you know, he went at everything at once. Um, recall, he was sending missiles as well into the western part of the country. He had great ambition uh, to decapitate the 
Ukrainian government uh, in a matter of days. He really seemed, he and his generals seemed to have thought they could actually take Kyiv and might have forgotten that there's some Ukrainians who live in Ukraine uh, who had got a vote uh, there. But um, part of the strategy was also, uh, you know, to take over strategic assets. And he had already done that by occupying and, and staging an illegal uh, annexation of Crimea, uh, you know, as many as now eight years ago that was. Um, but taking the southern parts of Ukraine with access uh, to the Black Sea, very, very important to his war plan. Um, and, you know, again, strategic access to water always being something uh, that generals uh, seek out and even uh, brutal dictators like like Putin. Um, but part of the idea as well was let me use the control that I have, my I, uh, Russian dictator, uh, over these key areas to prevent Ukraine from being the breadbasket of the world, which it had been, you know, for so long, one of the most substantial wheat, corn, uh, oil seed uh, producers and exporters uh, on the planet. And just to give a couple examples, um, Lebanon and Egypt, uh, each uh, about 80, more than 80% of each of their uh, wheat uh, comes, in fact, from from the region, from Ukraine wow. or Russia, and principally from Ukraine. And, and so in blockading the main port of egress for Ukrainian farmers' uh, produce and for their grains, you could, you could do two things. One, hurt the global south, potentially then creating more pressure uh, on the Ukrainian government or those like the United States who support the Ukrainian government to push for negotiations sooner, right? Because if you're if you're hurting and you're blaming the war rather than the invader, um, that could cause you again to to uh, to pull away your your solidarity with Ukraine, even if you don't believe it's a good thing that one country is invading another. If you're hurting and your people are hurting and you no longer have the fiscal space to borrow, uh, to subsidize, for example, fertilizer purchases for smallholder farmers, you know, maybe you can turn the global south into either a neutral force on this war, uh, which would be good for Putin, uh, or uh, as a force pushing the Ukrainians to turn over territory and just end this thing. So that's right. one aspect of it. But the other thing he's doing with this blockade, um, which began right when the war began, um, is starving Ukrainians, uh, far, Ukraine's farmers. And, you know, this was a, a major uh, exporting country before the war. 20% of the GDP came from agriculture before the war in Ukraine. 40% of its export revenue came from agriculture. So wow. if you're Putin and 95% of Ukraine's agricultural uh, grains uh, flow from the Black Sea ports, you can actually deny those farmers their livelihoods by blocking those ports. So flash forward. Uh, President Erdogan, Secretary General Guterres got personally very involved uh, seeing the effects on global food prices because irrespective of where the grains are going, just taking that amount of food off the global food market is going to cause prices to, to, to spike. And that's what happened. And they got involved and they negotiated an arrangement where uh, Russia agreed to this joint inspection process where right. you know everybody could say okay it's not going to be arms that are that are flowing out it's just going to be food and and that verification could occur 
And then when uh, Russia was the recipient of an attack on uh, parts of its uh, Black Sea uh, uh, port facilities, uh, in, in response to that, uh, Putin pulled a plug uh, on this deal. And I, I will say, for the period between August and late October, when he pulled the plug, when that grain deal was actually working, global food prices came down. And, uh, you know, uh, about a quarter of the wheat exports to low-income countries actually came out of uh, those ports. Putin has been saying these are only going into rich countries, this food, it's all fake, it's not about the global south. That's flawed in two respects. One, a huge chunk of it is going to the global south, and that's incredibly important, like the countries that are traditional traditional recipients of Ukrainian exported grain. But second, when you put more food out onto the global market, that's going to lower prices everywhere. And that's exactly what happened for that brief window, August, September, and much of October, where the, the Black Sea grain deal was functional. Having now suspended that deal, what has happened is we've already seen wheat and corn future prices go up. We're already the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization at the UN is already saying that food prices generally are going to go back up. Even the uncertainty, because there's still some question about whether it can be uh, relaunched or whether uh, it might be negotiated again in a manner where it can be resumed but just the, even the uncertainty around it, you know how markets work. Um, this yep. is already, uh, you know, costing people uh, meals for sure, um, because prices go up irrespective of whether food was about to arrive or not. Uh, you know, everybody is projecting in their own uh, market structure. So already, just in the few days since Putin has suspended uh, Russia's participation, that uncertainty is having a very, very negative effect. Again, already against that backdrop of such acute food insecurity around the world. Man, that is a brutally difficult problem because I guess, you know, how do you tell the Ukrainians not to (laughs) wage war against, you know, ships that are blockading their ports that are launching missile and drone attacks against them, you know, Russian forces in the region, but also, you know, clearly Putin is taking this as a, a pretext to pull out of a deal that I don't know, maybe he didn't want to be in in the first place. I'm not sure how you all view it. It seems like a hard problem is what I'm saying. That's a great, I mean, I think there was a lot of question about whether the deal would be re-upped in, in November. So we're now in the month that in any event, there was a question about whether Russia would wish for it to continue. And there uh, were a number of statements um, in recent days by senior Russian officials prior uh, to the attack that again became Putin's pretext that gave one reason for some pessimism about Mm -hmm. Russia's uh, enthusiasm to continue uh, the deal. But at the same time, even in that period, I think many in the UN system, for example, were very optimistic because you have leaders from the global South raising their voices. uh, And again, this is before it was suspended, but even for the renewal, saying, President Putin, you know, this matters for the world. This matters for hungry people. This matters for the global South. And I would note, Tommy, that um, two things. First, just to your point about pretext, um, you know, Russia itself, Russia saying, oh, this has made the Black Sea, uh, you know, these attacks on on ports have made uh, have made the Black Sea now insecure. It's too dangerous. You know, th- this kind of alibi. Mm-hmm. Russia has hit Ukrainian ports in right. the Black Sea. Repeatedly. Yeah. Right, right. So, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, you know, the notion that this is what has made life in the back Black Sea dangerous, um, needless to say, is is specious. 
But the second thing, just to flag, is that I was struck as a former uh, United Nations, uh, you know, official U.S. official at the United Nations, at the statements in the Security Council uh, since Putin has withdrawn or, or suspended, I guess, participation in the deal. I mean, hearing the Indian ambassador, the ambassador from Mexico, the ambassador from Ghana, you know, each raising their voices in a very, very pointed way to say. This is about hungry people all over the world, in a sense, let the grains go. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, I think there is still hope that that pressure from it's, you know, it's one thing to hear that pressure from Western countries, sure. to hear it from, you know, Prime Minister Modi's ambassador in the UN Security Council. That's not the India has been uh, in a studied neutral position, uh, yeah. you know, at the UN throughout this whole crisis and, and to be vocal and to say, you know, that this is really harmful, uh, to, to the world's poor and to the world's hunger, hungry and Modi's credibility in the UN system to speak to that message of all messages. I, I, you know, that is, that is, has got to be at least some factor in, in Putin's calculus. So Sam, you were, um, you were in Ukraine, uh, back in October, I believe, just curious how that visit compares to previous visits you made to the region and also to, you know, to Ukraine uh, back in 2015. Well, I, so I was back in in the capital in Kiev um, at the beginning of October. And I will say I was there just days, um, I think maybe four or five days before Putin you know, began this these this barrage of missile attacks mm -hmm. on on the capital. So I was there in 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 a moment that I know so many Ukrainians are nostalgic for, um, uh, you know, before it really has turned even darker, uh, you know, for people living in in areas that are are not proximate at all to Russian forces that have liberated themselves. I mean, the Ukrainians are so proud of having won the Battle of Kiev. Um, but when I was there, and again, it's just a matter of weeks ago, uh, cafes were open, culture was returning. You really had a sense that you were in a cosmopolitan Eastern European city. And to be clear, this week, you know, there are blackouts, uh, there are sirens around the clock. Um, Monday mornings are particularly grim, as Putin sees, seems to have decided that that's how he wants to usher in the work week in Ukraine by just um, pulverizing civilian infrastructure, energy infrastructure. So, um, you know, I just want to note that I was there at a particular time, at a moment in time, and, and things have really deteriorated um, because of uh, the Russian forces savagery and, and Putin's own uh, decision making and, and seeming, seemingly deliberate desire to ravage energy infrastructure uh, in advance yeah, of the winter. Water infrastructure. And right, water, yeah. energy and water, exactly. So having said that, what I do want to point to is what you mentioned, which is the contrast between when I had last been there, which granted was a long time ago, but and I'm, I'm proud because USAID and the U.S. government are, are, have worked in hand and glove with the Ukrainians in a number of domains that that I was really, really struck had borne such fruit. Um, so on the one hand, you could say between 2015 and 2022, that's seven years, that's a very long time. On the other hand, it's the blink of an eye in areas like building an independent media, you know, just having mm -hmm. a crew of journalists who are actually holding, even in under martial law, you know, the Ukrainian government, Ukrainian officials accountable. Obviously, they've rallied around the flag if uh, as Ukrainians to a large extent, but they are documenting war crimes right alongside 
some of these civil society groups that USAID has funded for a long time. USAID has worked for years in strengthening the agricultural sector that we talked about earlier. And what's been amazing is doubling down on that work during the war. So now helping them build you know, storage silos or giving them grain sleeves, the farmers, so that they can store grains that may be now on a much slower timeline to get out of the country because of this on again, off again, blockade by Putin, um, helping farmers get access to loans, um, you know, helping them uh, get loans also that will help them recover uh, machinery, farm machinery, uh, equipment that Putin's forces destroyed. Um, a lot of territory has been recaptured by the Ukrainians, helping with demining, working with the State Department and others. I, one of the projects that I saw when I was there, Tommy, was drone a drone project. And, and drones now, of course, have taken on a very different connotation with the yeah. Iranian uh, supplied drones uh, causing uh, such such harrowing loss of life and and destruction, but the drones that USAID is working with the Ukrainians to provide are drones that allow farmers to to spray uh, pesticide and and to lay down fertilizer while there is a risk of unexploded ordinances on the ground. Oh wow! And yeah. so seeing these farmers bring this technology to bear and being able to support that, so I was just very struck. And I, this remains true even with these these barrages of missiles that, and I met with President Zelensky, that they are so determined to get their economy going, even alongside this need to win the war and win various battles. And, you know, it stands to reason because they need tax revenue. Um, you know, lots of parts of the country uh, are stable militarily, even if now um, again, there's much greater risk of, of incoming than there might have been even just a month ago. But that planning that the Ukrainian government is doing, which we worked with them on, you know, how to do procurement in a more transparent way so there was less susceptibility to corruption, how to vet officials so that they have the kind of integrity you need. And we need this as USAID because we're providing such significant resources. We need that oversight. You know, we need that transparency. Uh, so as to ensure that taxpayer resources are, are going exactly where they are intended. But seeing over just that relatively short period of time since I was last there, how much more advanced these institutions are and being reminded, Tommy, that's what Putin hates. You know, remember yeah, right, that speech right. he gave before he invaded. That's the thing that makes him crazy is that they are progressing and that it became harder for the oligarchs, you know, to do their dirty business there in Ukraine. It wasn't you know, by any means perfect. But if you look at, again, the strides that have been made in integrating Ukraine's economy and its export market, you know, to uh, to Europe and to markets elsewhere and not just to the former Soviet Union countries, which is what it had, had looked like really uh, until the last decade, all of that gave him and his cronies, you know, much less leverage over what was happening in Ukraine on, on the things that we all focus on, on security policy and questions related to security arrangements and NATO and all the rest. Yes. But this right. other piece of it in many ways got, got less of attention. It was just remarkable how they had translated the professional workforce that they've long had, the incredible educational base you know, mm -hmm. into uh, a, a, a country that was really making inroads in, in building a tech sector, an IT sector, and again, strengthening those institutions in a way that, that meant that it wasn't just about what leader was in power or not in power, 
but seeing those checks and balances, which had been at quite a nascent stage, you know, growing up and now trying to sustain them in wartime, which is what USAID is, is working with our partners on the ground to try to do. It's impressive. Um, last question for you, sort of a, a change of gears here. So, you know, we we witnessed Iran's Green Revolution together from the White House in 2009. Uh, I asked President Obama about that period of time recently and the U.S. response, and he said it was a mistake to not do and say more at the time, or at least sort of like put our values on the table front and center. Fast forward to today, I'm just sort of curious how you have felt watching this new iteration of this incredibly brave, you know, woman-led protest movement in uh, in Iran and what you think countries can or should do to support them? Well, I mean, my my first reaction is one of of awe, of course, I think like like most of ours, and just to the bravery uh, these women and and young men know full well uh, what the Iranian regime is capable of. Um, I mean, that's been a galvanizing feature of the movement is, Mm-hmm. These remarkable uh, young women and and again young men who've been who've been killed asking just for basic rights and and basic dignity. So every day they go out on the streets, um, or every day you know they they mark up a billboard with graffiti or uh, you know pour red paint into a fountain or you know hold up a placard you know demanding something as basic as the ability to choose their own destiny. Uh, they know they're taking their lives into their own hands. And so, you know, it's just when I, I, I think again of of the, the the luxury of the world that I grew up in and and the rights and the privileges that that I have been blessed to, to, to be able to take advantage of. I mean, that's they're just looking for opportunity to 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 be able to again carve their own own paths and not be dictated to and and um, and and muzzled and stifled. In their in their human flourishing and development, and and so that's incredible. But it's it's also heartbreaking, Tommy, because the 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 weight of the state there, as we've seen time and again, and this is not the first, and is not uh, it, it, it's continuing now. We're at forty five days. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it does not uh, doesn't seem at all uh, to be to be petering out. If anything, more families are. Uh, you know, getting um, activated by what is being done to their loved ones, and 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 being engaged by their sons and their daughters about the future that that um, young people need and 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 covet. Um, but but again, seeing the hammer come down on these innocent lives and all the talent that is being and, and joy that is being extinguished is is also searing. In terms of what we are doing. You know the the effort to pinpoint those responsible actors, make their lives um, uh, much more more difficult, make the operations that they are conducting much more difficult. The sanctions against the morality police and others, Treasury's effort to make it easier for uh, American companies also to be able to um, ensure that, that young people have access to the technologies they need to be able to communicate with one another, you know, our sanctions Mm -hmm. were pretty restrictive. And so opening that up, I think has been, has been important, but Tommy, it's also striking the, the silence on the, on the global stage. I mean, more countries need to be raising their voices. Uh, Iran is definitely outnumbered and, and certainly marginalized at the United Nations. There's no question, 
But those countries that have leverage behind the scenes, um, you know, some of whom have their own human rights challenges, and that's part of the issue. Uh, they they duck uh, this. You know, one of the singular moral questions of our time, right, is whether whether young uh, young women, young people, you know, again get to grow and flourish on their on their own terms. And and so I think part of what we are doing as the United States is working through Ambassador Thomas Greenfield and Secretary Blinken and others, but to try to broaden the coalition of countries that is, that is, um, you know, again, uh, making clear that in, in this day and age, you know, these kinds of actions to suppress such basic shows of, of freedom and dignity, you know, have no place in this, in this world. But the more company, the better, the more that that regime, which is already feeling, I think, unprecedented pressure from bottom up, but to feel that as well in the international system in a much more intense way, I think, can be important. It's a really good point. Uh, Administrator Power, thank you so much for helping us understand what's going on. We appreciate it. It's great to see you. Hope to see you in person soon. That would be wonderful. Maybe we could visit D.C. You can run around. I don't know. I think, I think we'll do this offline. <laughs> you, you, you are on the road increasingly, which is, which is wonderful uh, for, for the masses. So we're, we're glad to see you guys thank back you. out there. Yeah. It's <laughs> Thanks, Ev. All right. Well, travel safe. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Sam Power, for joining the show. Ben, um, you haven't heard the interview yet, but she did uh, give a shout out to you and your Mets. And sort of like in like a in a sincere nice way. I, I know. She she sincerely feels me uh, as a long suffering Red Sox fan who act after 2004 was no longer suffering. No, so I no. appreciate that. I um I will say one other, we were talking about the New Yorker earlier. One other plug I want to make is Evan Osnos has an article about this, the billionaire Chinese sugar daddy for C. Bannon. Yep. Which I don't think it's got enough attention that this guy was like full on Chinese intelligence operative and may still be. Straight <laughs> so, up. So basically like, yep. you know, it's kind of ambiguous. Some people think he still works for, he clearly did work for Chinese intelligence. Um Imagine if like crooked media was funded by like a Chinese intelligence operative. I think the right would pay some attention to that. Like, you might get noticed. If the War Room podcast is might maybe a product of Chinese intelligence, it I mean, seems like uh, the music when they go to ads is about how we're taking down the CCP. Yeah, but it would be like, and look, maybe this guy has undergone the conversion. He says where he's now a dissident, but like it would actually be the most genius thing possible. Oh, yeah, I'm just saying it's weird. Yeah, well, to say like you know he's flipped when. In fact, he hasn't flipped. That's what would happen in the spot. Or he's associated with someone who's like the last holdout to the anti-Xi kind of block yeah. within yeah, China. Yeah, or what, yeah, yeah. N- nothing good. Boji Lai kind of Yeah, yeah. It's uh, how a tycoon linked to Chinese intelligence became a darling of Trump Republicans. It's a super fun read and people should check yeah, it out. Yeah, I listened to him on Fresh Air, I think, yeah. uh, talking about it. But I do have to read it because Evan's really good. And his book about his time living in China and reporting from China was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go because... When we get up from these chairs, um, John Favreau is going to just fucking cover us with exit polls and uh, polls out of Pennsylvania and just things that are going to make us feel sad. This is my safe space. The only reason I want to go is I think I may have like achieved an early New Year's resolution. What do you do? I occasionally, you know, I do pay attention to feedback. I've been told I say like 
too much oh, on really? this show. I think I made it all the way through a podcast wow. without saying a lot. Good job. So just okay. want to let people know. I read the bad reviews as well as the good ones. I'm trying to get the PSA crew to swear a little less. I know I've said F more times on this episode than I usually do on this show, but... I will not give up swearing. I will... Just, that, get, that, just that, yeah. you know, three an hour versus yeah, yeah. like 45 <laughs> yeah, 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 when yeah. Dan and John get teed yeah. off. Uh, okay. That's all I got. All right. Talk to you. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.com.